Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you online listening or watching, good morning to you also. We are in the gospel according to Mark chapter 6. And we will stand in one moment and read verses 30 through 45. The gospel of Mark chapter 6. Would you please stand? Beginning at verse 30 through 45. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitudes saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot, From all the cities, they arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that... They may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them, give something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks of hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to eat before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments And of the fish, now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. Please be seated. You may notice that I included the first verse of the next paragraph, verse 45, because it it is a very important part of the story. And it belongs to both paragraphs. The hand of sovereignty is what we're considering this morning. And of course, it is the hand of Christ that is sovereign. Sovereign, that word means uh, to have supreme authority and power. It's interesting that in our English, authority and power, and in our Greek New Testaments, the emphasis is made that Christ had authority and power using these two Greek words, Dunamis, from where we get our word dynamite, and excusia. He had the right and he had the might. That's our Lord. This sovereignty belongs to him, and none of us are surprised by this. In fact, when we become Christians, we're not surprised at all this glory that's just flying off the pages into our lives. We drink it in. We develop a hunger and thirst for God's word because we have a hunger and thirst for God. And I'm not surprised by this miracle. I'm not saying, well, it's not very impressive. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, he's God. 
He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course he can multiply fish. He can walk on water. He can stop the storm. He can raise the dead. I'm not surprised. You may say, well, I agree. Why are you even mentioning this? Because by the end of this chapter, which we won't get to this morning, the apostles, they weren't getting it. They They were so busy in ministry that they really didn't have a time to digest all of these things. And the scripture, the Holy Spirit, he points these things out. And we are to read them and say, okay, this is a message to me to be careful. To not get so caught up in learning about God that I'm missing the point. This is very easy to do. According to sovereign God, man has no right to believe whatever he wants about God. It comes with his sovereignty. It comes in the package with him being God. That human beings do not have the right to shape him, to form him into their image. It's the other way around. God has rights, and ultimately they will all be enforced. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Man has no right to disagree with truth, the truth of God. When God gives it to him and man sees it, he has no right to dismiss it. You say, well, who does that? Judas Iscariot did that. Satan himself did that. I mean, here's Satan in heaven with, around all the glory of God. And still, he thought he could outdo God. Man has no right to make up things about God, about good, about evil, about hell, about the spiritual world. There are a list of things that man has no right to do. And because man goes oftentimes, goes ahead and does it anyway, he becomes accountable for these things. It is sin if he is, again, consciously disagreeing or rejecting God. Man has no right to confine God to man's opinions. So as you sit, you know, we, we, we encourage you to bring your Bibles to church, to open them up, to go through the scripture together so that you're not being dictated to. That we're all being exposed at the same time, allowing the Holy Spirit to do what he and only he can do. And that is to isolate us, to pinpoint, and to be very specific with whatever it is that he feels needs to be specified. And we love to have it so. We love for God to point out a verse and we say, that's it. That's right. Especially when we're interacting with someone who's lost or in need of a word in season. And we get the verse, and we say, thus says the Lord, and so it shall be. That is authority that comes from on high. Continuing my line of rights, which man has not, man has the right, actually, to submit when faced with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every human being has that right to submit to God. What will they do with it? Because you have the right, it doesn't mean you're going to benefit from it. Unused advantages are no longer advantages. They're missed opportunities. And in this case, it is critical to the soul. Here is Jesus Christ. He is God the Son. And he is sovereign over all creation. 
And in this section, it flashes out before us, and we do not ever want to be so familiar with Christ multiplying the fish and bread that it becomes a ho-hum event. We're not surprised, but we are still impressed. In fact, being impressed is not enough. We want to be moved into action. We want to be used. We, you know, that player on the bench that says, Coach, just put me in. Use me. Sometimes the coach says, no, you need rest. Other times he says, get in there. We need a big hit. Then such is the Christian life. He is God and must not be seen as less. And that's what we're getting from Mark in this chapter. As we've been getting it from Mark, we get it from Matt. We get it from the whole Bible. In the end, these truths from this entire Bible... They benefit those who submit to them. Those who stop pretending and resisting benefit from his sovereignty. He puts us in heaven, world without end, without pain, without suffering forever, and no one will ever take us out. The sovereign hand of God is a big deal. So those who think they have the right to dictate terms to God... I think are summed up in this word by A.W. Tozer that I'm about to quote. Because there are those, there are many of them, that believe in what is called the universal fathership of God. In other words, he's everybody's father. The Bible does not agree with that. Tozer writes, The fatherhood of God can be stretched to include everyone, from Jack the Ripper to Daniel the prophet. Thus, no one is offended and everyone feels quite Snug and ready for heaven. That is right on. There are those that want to tell themselves it's going to be okay. And even if they get to hell, they'll somehow work it out. That ain't so. And so we look now at the 30th verse of Mark chapter 6. Remembering, hopefully, as we go through this, these sovereign points concerning our Savior. He is more than our Savior. There's more to Jesus Christ than what we see in the scripture. There's more to Jesus Christ than him saving us from hell. He would be every bit wonderful, glorious, and beautiful if he never created us. If he never created the universe, if he never died for us, he would be no less who he is. The fact that he has done these things serves to let us know that not only is he sovereign, he's loving, he's merciful. His mercy and his love are also sovereign to the point where nothing can touch those things. Nothing can alter his power or love. Verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Uh, They were excited. He had sent them out. We covered that in verses 12 and 16 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, when he sent them out to minister. And now they're back, and they're very excited about all the things that they had accomplished in his name. And remember, Judas is in that number. But there's bad news waiting for these men. And uh, there's a gap of information between verse 30 and verse 31. Now, what Mark does, Mark gives us a parenthesis. He tells the story of Christ sending out the apostles in verses Uh, 12 and 13, and then the parentheses come. He says, oh, and by the way, Christ is doing all these things. This is what Herod is doing. 
Herod's in there trying to figure out who Jesus is. He's got all these screwball ideas, but the man is a monster. In fact, let me give you the details of why he's a monster. So he has this party, his birthday party, and he has this dance going on, and then he trades for the head of John the Baptist. He was sorry, but he wasn't repentive. And he he was impenitent, we would say. And so Mark gives us that there in verses 14 and 15. But Matthew adds this right at that point. Matthew 14, who covers the parallel uh, uh, version of this story. Not a contradictory version. Just a little bit more insight from a different angle. He says, when Jesus heard it, he departed there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Um, Speaking of by himself, that's not the verse I wanted. Let me see. The multitudes heard him. But let's pause for commercial. Matthew tells us, I have to go to Matthew to read it to you. It's your fault. If you had memorized all of Matthew 14, I wouldn't have to do this. <laughs> Matthew tells us in verse chapter 14, verse 12, And I should add, these are the things a pastor prays does not happen in the pulpit. All right, I'm not going to find it and I'm not going to look. I can't even see at this point. Matthew tells us that at this moment, the disciples of John came and told him that John was murdered by Herod. And that is happening at the same time that the disciples are coming back and saying, Lord, look what we've done in the ministry. Here's our report. The, uh, John's disciples come, said they've killed John. And Jesus says, verse 31 now, and he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat nor to grieve. Those disciples of John They had the gruesome task of having to take the headless body of John and entomb it, as Mark tells us. And now that they bring word to Christ, he's not going to have time to really grieve. The only moment of rest and grief that they will experience is on the boat ride from where they are, likely in Capernaum, to Bethsaida, on the way to Bethsaida. But uh, things will change. Uh, Actually, not Bethsaida, to their resting place. Mark does not return to the story of Herod because Herod is unimportant. He's made his point. He lets that part of the narrative evaporate. And he continues with the story. The lesson that comes from this is that as horrible as it is that we've lost John, life goes on. And when life goes on for the believer, so does ministry simultaneously go on. And as life goes on, we come across those craving people. John tells us, as does Mark and Matthew, that they were looking for miracles. And the apostles, they saw the cravings. They felt they were part of Jesus satisfying those needs. But then the apostles began to care about the people, likely exhausted themselves in wanting to be rid of the people for a while. That's likely very much what was going on. So the craving people, the caring apostles, catch the alliteration, and the compassion of Jesus. These come off the pages for us saying, the sovereign God is working it out in this life with us. Life goes on. In spite of all the things that 
we find ourselves in conflict with. And if those who minister do not come aside from always serving, they will come apart from always serving. And so he says, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Time for a Sabbath. You can't always minister. And so you plan to take breaks. But then those breaks are interfered with. And this is the story before us. Verse 32. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. Now, the Lord chose no less than four men who fished and sailed this lake and knew it very well. He chose those, those four, and maybe more, but at least those four, to be with him. And here we see him using their skills. Whenever he needed their skills, he called upon them. Of course, he could overrule their skills when those skills were not sufficient, such as that storm we read about in the fifth chapter that almost drowned them all. Christ skillfully guides whatever skills I may have, whatever talents I may have, whatever abilities I may acquire and or develop. He is still the master craftsman. He is still the master. Psalm 78, verse 72 So he shepherded them to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. You can say that of a father. You can say that of a leader, a pastor. But it belongs to Christ. It belongs to the God who is there, who is involved. So that when I am struggling, when I am perplexed, when I can't figure it out, when I've had about enough of all this stuff, I still find myself submitted to him and waiting in my perplexity. Trusting by faith that he'll do what he needs to do when he's ready to do it. And it is my business to be ready when he is ready. Regardless of how much squirming I may find myself doing. Verse 33. But the multitude saw them departing and many knew him. And ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. This is the peak of his popular enthusiasm. This is the time in his ministry when people are just seeking him and wanting him. They're listening to him. There's going to be a twist at the end of this story. But they're coming out in droves. John adds in chapter 6. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Matthew says, and when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. So you've you've got people coming out. There's the first that initial group that beats him to that destination the boat was headed towards. They just sort of ran along the shoreline. And then the others that they were picking up, the momentum was gaining. The word was bad. You know, Jesus is coming to so-and-so. He's heading to this. And and people are closing up shop. And they're all racing to this place that was supposed to be the place of rest. Jesus said, my father works until now, and I do too. In other words, there's no rest for God. God is working all the time. He's tireless. And I'm working also. And we see this in action. Verse 34 now. And Jesus... When he came out, saw the great, a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. 
So he began to teach them many things. Now, just a moment ago, I read you the two verses that said they were also coming out bringing their sick with them. Because Mark leaves that part out of the story, so we just bring it in from the other ones. This uh, compassion for them as a shepherd, and seeing them as uh, a flock, vulnerable, without a protector, without a shepherd, the Latin word pastor. It's an Old Testament expression being used here by Mark. It... Uh, when he says uh, he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. Well, that is uh, picked up in Kings and Ezekiel. Jeremiah hammers it. It uh, speaks of inadequate and or corrupted leadership. Sheep having no shepherd. They may have a leader, but if he is corrupted, they have no leader. They have no shepherd. They have a ruler. So he began to teach them many things. Interesting. He sees them coming out, bringing their sick. He has compassion on them, so he teaches them. Now, a lot of people might take issue with it. Why didn't he just, you know, meet their social needs? Why didn't he give them all new sandals? He decides he's going to give them a Bible study. The carnal will recoil at that. Now, I'm not saying a Bible study fixes everything. Not at all. There are times when it's just not appropriate to give someone a Bible story. But there are many times when it is. And we better take those times, like we're doing right now. We're taking those times. The time, to, to, we're seizing the moment to preach the word of God. The way exposition works is, God appoints his servant. He works with him in his study to filter out a lot of the junk, to organize the thoughts, to be able to present something that everybody can follow to some degree. And then, after the folks have listened, or while they're listening, the Holy Spirit himself comes alongside of them. And he may point out things during the message. He may point it out later. He may point it out years later, decades later. All of a sudden, you have a flyer. I remember a pastor said this one, that handsome one. I remember that guy. I know everybody says that, but I'm too modest to bring it up to you. Anyway, he begins to teach them. Because he knew they needed to learn. He knew that if he left them in the dark, they'd stumble. They wouldn't be able to see. We, we mustn't lose this. When Jesus came across the two grieving disciples on the road to Emmaus, he did not pamper them. He expounded on the scripture. Moses and the prophets, the whole scripture. He opened it up to them as much as he could on that walk. When I see those guys in heaven, I'm like, why didn't you write it down? <laughs> we were just, what did he say? <laughs> so he knew. He knew that they had to learn how to conduct themselves, or they would never really develop skills to be used by God. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15, one of my favorite verses and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. This is the will of God. God is saying this is what I'm going to do because this is what I want to do. And it's going to happen. And sadly, many who profess Christ don't appreciate these things. They don't get it. They reduce, you know, uh, pastors to sort of like baseball cards. You know, I like this one. I don't like that one. This one's good. You know, so let's swap them or something. And they're not understanding the divine processes in back of these things. 
pastor could have no power unless it was given to him from on high, from heaven. It is God's process. It is not because of the man. I don't care how much schooling he goes through. I don't care how much he reads his Bible and prays. It is the work of God or it's nothing. And it's a good system. Well, they received his sermons, many of them not to their benefit. Many of them are just like, it just how heartbreaking. How heartbreaking it is to teach uh, God's word only to have it sort of turned against you when you're innocent. And that's what Christ is going to experience. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. That's the submitting kind of faith. That's the faith that includes surrender. That's the faith that says, I, my self-will, my self-interest, must decrease so that God, Christ in me, can increase, can expand, can gain power, can gain the upper hand. Paul said to Titus, while he's, you know, Titus was one of Paul's strong uh, assistants. When you know, Tychicus and Titus, when he needed those guys to go out and clean things up, he, he, when he needed men, he, those were two men he'd, he'd choose. So he writes to Titus, and he's giving him instructions on how to run the church. And he talks about a type of people that are churchgoers or Christ's professors. He says, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. They've ruined the whole thing. They're corrupted. They have this, oh, I'm a Christian. But the way they live, the things that they do to people, it's abominable. It's not obedience. And in doing so, they're disqualified. That's quite remarkable. And we do well to heed these things, as Peter said. You do well to heed God's word. In verse 35, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is... Pardon me, I read that with the wrong tone. I read it as though they just discovered this. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread. For they have nothing to eat. So the disciples, it's a genuine concern. They do care. But still, they're going to be happy to see the people go. They want that rest. Much of their work was crowd control. And you just, how much, I mean, there's going to be a conservative number of how many people are here? Very conservative, 10,000. More likely 15. Uh, We'll get that at the end. This is uh, a lot of people. And with that comes a lot of other things. And these men, they're tired, they're hungry, they're ready for a rest. The seemingless, endless multitudes of needs. People coming up to them, can I have a word with Christ? Can I just, and just on and on it goes. Verse 37. But he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? 
Now, John, John's gospel, his account, is almost comical because he singles out Philip. He says, Philip, <laughs> fill up the baskets, Philip. Okay, he doesn't do that. But he challenged, what are we going to do, Philip? And Philip <laughs> Philip's scratching his head. He's trying to figure it out. And every time we see Philip, he's getting the question wrong. It's kind of an interesting study. But they're almost being wise guys. What do you want us to do? Go into town with 200, with all this money, cash rolling out, and just buy bread for everybody? It's, it's, they're kind of pushing back because they're not getting still. They're still not getting it. Who he is. They got a lot of it. I look at this, and as I'm criticizing them, I'm right there with them. Because there are times where I'm not getting it. And you know what? I, I, I have a flashback of Nicodemus and the Lord saying to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't get it? I've heard God say that to me. Are you the pastor, the Bible teacher, you don't get it? No. I mean, it's not that I don't get it. I don't want it. I don't want the circumstances. I know what you want me to do. I always know what you want me to do. I just don't always want to do it. My flesh. And he tells us, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Okay, so what are you telling me? Are you telling me, Pastor, that that's your out every time? You're just weak? You just, you know, you don't want to do it? Not at all. I will still grab from my sword and I will swing it nonetheless. Whatever weaknesses I have, I still have enough to hold the word. And he knows that. And it has, I, all I can say is, I'm still standing. And it is because of him. And so when he, these men say, you give, uh, when he says, you give them something to eat, and they counter with it, what do you want us to do? Take a lot of money into town and buy bread for, for these thousands of people? He's bringing them face to face with their own inability to meet human needs without him. They don't see it at the moment, but they're going to get it full force eventually. And I don't mean in a harsh way. Again, John's gospel and his parallel account. But this he said to test him when he asked the disciple. For he knew what he would do. He knew what he was going to do the whole time. A denarii is a day's pay. And... To have 200 denarii is about 800, I mean, about eight months of wages, which money that they don't have. Uh, Judas might have it. <laughs> he may have stolen enough from everybody else. But anyway, well, that's what you do when you steal something. That's right? from everybody else. Verse 38, and he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go see. <laughs> and they went and found out and said, Five, five loaves and two fish. And you can hear their tone. Like, you know, okay, here's how much we have. We have a boy's lunchbox. That's what they had. His little basket. Mom sent him, okay, you're going to go run with the disciples and see Jesus? Fine. You make sure you get your bread and fish basket and you go. And he does. And Andrew is the one that buddied up with the kid. You know, Andrew's just everybody's buddy. When well, you got that kid. And, and, you know, so he brings word back. Verse 38, but he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go see. And they found and said five and two fish. Verse 39, then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. Green grass, chloros, where we get our English word chlorine from. It is green yellow in the Greek. He said, what does that have to do with the story? 
Well, it's Passover season. The grass is beginning to still raining and starting to turn. It's going to brown up as it dries out, but the seasons. John's Gospel, again, chapter 6. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. So it's March, April, just a time stamp for us. Verse 40. Uh, Let me pause there. Of course, Peter's telling the story, more than likely. John John Mark may have been there also. Somebody remembered this little detail. To someone, this was a vivid memory. And it enters into the scripture. And it's a very human touch. It is, it is God saying, these are eyewitnesses. These are men that were there. And it's just quite natural of them. I can remember was, the grass was just like green, yellow, kind of just, you know. And it, it, it finds its way into scripture. This, if it were creative writing, we'd have pages more of this kind of stuff. But we don't. We just have these little bits every now and then. Because these men were so focused on what was going on. I think they hid the identity of many people, fearing that they would be persecuted. I think they also left out some facts because of various good reasons. I think the way we have the gospel presented to us with the three synoptic gospels and the one independent gospel, I think it is an act of God how it is given to us. It forces us to think through to the challenges, to see if there's contradictions or not. We'll come to that trust in the word a little bit. But coming back to this, verse 40, so they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. Now that kind of organization will make distribution go a lot more smoothly. And the coming miracle of fish sandwiches that everybody's going to get uh, does not need to be hampered with chaos. Uh, very, very smart. And this would also help identify how many people were there. You break them down into ranks, you just do the multiplication. Verse 41. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So he says grace before the meal. He does this at the Passover, too. We are to do the same thing. First Thessalonians. Now, a little background here. The Thessalonian church, when Paul writes this first Thessalonian letter, it's a new church. He and Silas established this church while still bleeding from the beating in Philippi. And so these people that were attracted to their message knew about this beating, knew what they were getting into. They're pretty solid believers early on. And not just months after he establishes this church, he writes to them this Thessalonian letter. And so he, uh, he treats them, he gives them end times information. He gives them uh, how to disfellowship if you have to somebody or, and who to be with and who not to be with as far as fellowship goes. And he says this, In everything give thanks, for it is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And everything, you know, we all know the Philippian, be anxious for nothing but in all things, with thanksgiving, prayer and supplication. Well, here it is straight out. This is the will of God. And we see Christ giving us that example. He takes the food and he blesses it. I try not to let even, you know, anything go into my mouth without saying, thank you, Lord. I eat the, you know, you can be fruit, vegetables, candy, milkshakes. I'm very grateful for God feeding me, 
And I don't mean to say that I am and you haven't been. I don't, I'm not being preaching down at you. I'm just enjoying the moment. Because I remember when I wasn't that way. So he looked to heaven. Because that's where everything comes from. That is good. But what we see in this also, and this is kind of standard in preaching on this verse. What he takes, he blesses. And what he blesses, he breaks. And what he breaks, he distributes. That is very good preaching. I just don't want to be the one broken. But there's no way to really have the Lord distribute through you unless there's some breaking going on. Unless there's some hardship, some facing life, suffering of various sorts. You know, you can, you can go through life, you know, healthy and really unscathed by many things. But still internally, there's that struggle. You can't put your finger on why it's there. As David said, why are you cast down, O oh, my soul, why? Trust in God, David goes to say. I didn't need a whole dissertation. Well, what you've got is he didn't need all of that. He just trusted in God. Verse 42, so they all ate and were filled. These are the apostles now. They ate first. Everybody else is sort of gathering, wondering what's going on. Christ has enough momentum through his healings and teachings for them to be patient enough. But before we can be used to feed others, we ourselves must feed on the great work and truth of Christ personally. We're kind of annoyed at someone who acts like a know-it-all when they know nothing. And we identify that. The person doesn't know what he's talking about. John's Gospel, Peter said to him, chapter 13, this is when he's washing the, the, the apostles' feet. Peter said to him, you should never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. If I don't feed you, if I don't wash you, if I don't fill you, what can you do? 1 Corinthians, Paul says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. First received. Then he goes on to say this, That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You see, it's always the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the Word of God. And Satan is notorious for coming along and saying, okay, enough with the Bible now. Now it's time for something practical. Well, we're doing practical things as best we can, but that can get away from us too. I mean, you start give, we just opened the bookstore and gave, just gave everything out. People would take books away that they would never would read just because they're free. It's just how people are. We have to learn how to manage the blessings that God gives us. I remember as a relatively new believer, I was just devouring God's word. And... I went on a church camping trip, and I'm lying there in a tent, and Satan said, I think you're putting just too much of, in, into Christ. It's just too much Bible reading. It's just way too much. And almost instantly, the Lord spoke to me. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You need to throw everything you've got into me as best you can. And that's where largely my struggles have been in my life. I've not been able to do that according to what I want. I mean, I you know, walk around this really holy man. And that's what we all want when we come to Christ. And we find out it's a, it's a fist fight, bare knuckles. It's a very ugly thing. It's not choreographed. It doesn't come out the way we planned. We have to be swift to make adjustments on the move and still be obedient to Christ. 
And so, all the Gospels record this. But I want to just emphasize to us all that the sovereignty of God, what would it mean to us without the Scripture? We'd be so confused. We'd be so scattered. We'd be making it. We'd be like the Jews in, in the days before Moses gave them the law. There were those that just believed and knew better. But there were many of them that were idle. Their houses were idle infested and they just could had a hard time letting it go. So John, even he, records this miracle. And John wasn't in the habit of, of loading up with the miracles as the synoptics were. But anyway, fish sandwiches for everyone. Energy rich, proteins and carbohydrates. I know some of you think carbs are evil, but um, you got to have them. Uh, and if you're going to have bread, verse 43, then they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Where did they get the baskets? Huh. Basket Depot. It was right. <laughs> uh, first off, the boat is one place. These are smaller baskets here. The Greek gives us that. And that means that they could, um, uh, they're like lunch boxes. Like, you know, today you have backpacks. Well, some of you do. Um, am I still here? <laughs> so the baskets, 12 baskets they have, 12 apostles on the boat. Each one would have had his own lunchbox kind of a thing. Uh, sort of like a construction site. Everybody brings their lunchbox. And plus there were those that had carts bringing the sick. Those carts would have had baskets on it. You have one kid at least that knew enough to have his basket of lunch. And so it's not a... Big thing. And I, but I like these kind of questions. You know, you get this, if everybody's out there, stores are closed, where do they get the baskets? Well, there are uh, some very easy answers uh, for that. Uh, uh, but this multiplying of the bread and the fish, for God who gave a whole nation out in the desert 40 years of manna, this is just you know, not hard to believe. He turned water into wine already, and that seemed to go over the apostles' heads. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He's sovereign. Colossians, chapter 1. little background on the Colossian church. Paul probably never visited that little church. But, of course, the Gnostics were messing with the believers. And so Paul took to pen and, and wrote, a, wrote the Colossian letter to them to say, you don't need all that stuff. You're complete in Christ. Never mind these philosophies and these endless ideas. You have enough in Jesus Christ. A lesson that many Christians don't seem to get. Well, he says, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. He's talking about Jesus Christ, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominion or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Now, what part do you not get about that? If you're a believer, you have to accept his power to create. It is exactly what we would expect from God walking the earth. The ability to take fish and bread and multiply them from one lunchbox to feed a multitude of thousands. Nobody was there with a camera to take pictures of these things, but they did have writing instruments, and so they wrote it down. Verse 44. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. <laughs> uh, 
again, the apostles are very busy. Look at verse 52 of Mark chapter 6 with me, please. He says, For they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. You see, that's the point I've been trying to make throughout, that this was going over the disciples' heads. Some of them saw the miracles at the miracle at Cana. They saw the other miracles. And still the sovereignty of this Jesus Christ wasn't taking root in them enough. Because they said, what are we going to do? Take Denari into the town and buy? What kind of silly answer is that? He could have said, you know, I'm tired of you. Pew. <laughs> Hung him up in a tree. Uh, but of course he would never do that. Uh, I would if I had the power. <laughs> no, I would not. But it's fun to think about. Uh, where was I? Okay. Verse 44. Those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. The Greek word for men is strictly men, males. It is no way to introduce anything else to it. Matthew chapter 14. Now, those who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Typically, the women and children in public gatherings ate separately from the men. So when they were dividing them up, it's very likely that the women were in their groups and the women and children and the men were in their groups uh, separate. This would help them be able to say, here's how we know there were 5,000 men. And in that time, the women were not, you know, well, you know, figure it out. You know, the wives and children with them, you could again have triple that number to 15,000. Some say 20,000. I don't dispute either number. What's a few thousand amongst miracles? When he repeats this type of miracle, and he will later for 4,000 men, will anybody be able to say, ah, lucky, he just was, was just lucky that time. So here's a point for this morning. Some who profess Christ are terrified about admitting miracles. They're just uncomfortable with the miracles of Christ. They don't mind when Charlton Heston does a miracle, dressed as Moses. But when it really comes down to real life, they're not comfortable with these things. Why is, why is that? I think one reason is because they think they have to answer to the overlords of human reason. They feel like if somebody real smart away from Christ doesn't agree with them, that they might be right. And the Bible is wrong. They're panicked by the thought that science may prove the Bible wrong instead of emboldened by the fact that science and the Word of God are always in unity together. We have nothing to fear, these people. These overlords are telling us, you know, everybody needs to wear a mask because you're ugly. Right? I'm assuming that's why they're doing it. I I mean, I just, we're seeing this now. We're seeing the overlords of science ruling like despots and everybody lining up to it. But it's been happening in the minds of some people a long time before this when they came to their Bible. And that's why you have these liberal theologians, these liberal authors in Christ's name. They'll use the scripture here and there, but they're the ones smart enough to know when the scripture's right. You're not. And they make their bestsellers. Let me give you a little hint. If a book is a bestseller, it probably doesn't agree with Christ. 
I mean, it's not 100%. Every now and then, one comes by to keep us on our toes. But it is the way it is. Um, A.W. Toja's books should be bestsellers. Vance Havner's books should be bestsellers. Charles Spurgeon's sermons should be bestsellers. You're not going to find anything like this that's better. Of anything that's coming out of theology today, you will not find better than those three men, just for an example, that I just mentioned. Why is that? I think it has something to do with Tower of Babel, the passage of information, the joining of the world to the church. It's always been a struggle, but what's different from any other time in history is the ability to pass information at speed that we can't even measure. I mean, you just send an email to somebody in another country and they've got it as soon as you push send. Anyway, I kind of went down a rabbit trail because it's fun sometimes. It's better to go down a rabbit trail than an alligator trail. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11. This is for those who are panicked at the thought that science may prove the Bible wrong. Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. There are other things at work. We don't know it all, but God does. But we do know enough, and what we do know is not wrong. Today's media would not have reported this event, or they would have corrupted it. They would have said he fed thousands, but then we found trailer loads of food, and, and, and they just would try to take it away from him. Verse 45, I know we have to go. Some of you have places to go today. I don't know why. But verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. So here's why this is so important. He's, and John is the one that tells us. Well, I'll go right to what John is saying. Well, not yet. When Mark says immediately, he means, and then the next thing that happened throughout his gospel. But here, it is actually an urgent call. So where he says immediately he made his disciples get in the boat. There was something forcing the moment. There was an urgent need. And John tells us what it is in chapter 6 of verse 14 and 15. After Jesus had fed everyone. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore... When Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So he feeds them. He understands, okay, they're going to try to force me to be their king. So he gets to his deposit. I want you to get in this boat. I want you to get out of here. I don't want this to be any part. Uh, of of what we're what I'm doing and what is happening with you, and so he's getting them out of the area. He'd, he he will leave and likely, as I believe, go atop of Mount Arbel, that is there on the shore of Galilee. He'd have no kingship based on selfish satisfaction, and that's what it is. They wanted to enslave the miracle worker so that he could be like a Ped's dispenser. They just push the button and a loaf of bread comes out. That's what they saw their Messiah to be. The messianic fervor was in the air. They figured they could force him to be king. Then they could rally Galilee. Then they could march on Jerusalem. These are the kind of thoughts that were going through these carnal men's minds. 
What about the teachings he was giving them? When he stepped off the boat, he began to teach them. Well, those teachings about God are only good if they're subject to what men need. That was their approach. They did not want to crown him because of his person or his teachings, but for his goodies. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. We ought to remember these kind of verses. This comes out of expositional teaching. It comes out of your devotional time. They wanted bread and miracles to become a permanent thing. And no more Gentiles. That was another part of it. Which makes the book of Acts so incredibly powerful. When Peter goes to the house of Cornelius and he brings the Gentiles into Christianity because they become filled with the Spirit, so speaking in tongues, he says, let's baptize them right now. Who can deny them? So Jesus did not believe. The voice of the people is the voice of God, said some of the ancients. Jesus said, I disagree with that. Jesus believed it is the voice of God that is the voice of God. And the people must line up to that. And that is his sovereign right. And we who know him because of his Holy Spirit, we love that it is so. Let's pray. Our Father, an act that is very simple for you to multiply fish and bread and to disperse it to multitudes is very significant to us to this very day because we believe it happened. We know it happened. And we're not asking permission from anyone to act upon the faith that you give us in Jesus Christ. As I'm speaking, perhaps, Lord, there has been someone who has been listening who has not opened their heart to you ever. But they can sense the movement of your spirit, and they have a decision to make, they have a choice to make. They can disregard all that you are doing in their heart at this moment for whatever silly reason they may come up with, or they can act upon it. They can submit to your sovereign touch, to your loving touch, and they can become born again. If you're listening or watching or here in the church and you'd like to open your heart to Christ, you just make this confession of faith. You say to him, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments and I ask you to forgive me because there's no one else who sits upon the throne and has this right, who died for me and is the creator of heaven and earth. I submit to you. I ask you from this day forward to be not only my Savior, but my Lord. I give my life to you. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be timid about their confession, but may they act upon it and make their confession known. In these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.